from PRX. Stew. 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 De. De. E. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Oh, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you a, are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, Alexander Payne on his new movie, Downsizing. I make thrillers, I make westerns, I make musicals. But within that, you smuggle whatever honest concerns you have. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. Red, you go. Where shall I go? What shall I do? Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. And if you don't recognize that scene, I'm betting you're either extremely young or not an American or... Amish. Everybody knows Gone with the Wind. It won 10 Oscars in 1940 and is one of the most beloved and successful movies ever made. But these days, we find ourselves in an era of serious Gone with the Wind rethink. Now, Gone with the Wind has been pulled from its annual screening at the historic Orpheum Theater in Memphis, Tennessee, over complaints that the film is racially insensitive. Like with Confederate monuments, which Gone with the Wind kind of is, more and more Americans can't help but see this beloved movie differently today than they did even a few years ago. Aisha Harris is a writer for Slate and host of the podcast Represent. She just wrote a a great article about how movie theaters, TV networks, and schools are rethinking how and if they show Gone with the Wind. Aisha, welcome to Studio 360. Hi, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So when you started uh, reporting this, what did you think the nut of this story was? Well, one of the things that I thought was very interesting was the fact that we were even having this discussion in the first place, uh, the the question of whether theaters should be screening the film. And the fact that the Orpheum Theater decided not to, I thought, was um, kind of surprising in, in the wake of Charlottesville. So in the wake of all of that hubbub with the theater canceling, they there were a lot of think pieces about, you know, what should we do with Gone with the Wind? And, you know, a lot of them agreed, well, it's it's a racist movie, but we shouldn't censor movies. Like, that's not a good idea. And generally, I I agree with that. Uh, So my question was, instead of what should we do with them, I want to know what is actually happening. Are they rethinking things in the wake of Charlottesville, and how are they going about doing that? So in Memphis, the Orpheum movie theater, what did they say about why they decided to cancel their annual showing of Gone to the Wind? Even though I wasn't able to talk to them directly, you know, what they did say in other reports was they were trying to appeal to their audience and their neighborhood is predominantly black. So I can understand why you would choose to not show the film in that context. Yeah. And Memphis is a predominantly African-American city. Correct. Yes. Uh, I assume you watched Gone with the Wind as a kid, right? Oh, yeah. I've seen it probably in full maybe three or four times in my lifetime. But like when it's on TV or I catch it, I've watched it in like clips and scenes of it. Right. And, And when you first saw it, how did you regard this film? I probably saw it when I was maybe 12 or 13 for the first time. 
And I remember thinking it was really pretty and being engrossed by it, but also feeling slightly ashamed by the depictions of of the black people in the film. I've always sort of felt that when watching certain movies and TV shows, feeling othered in a way that never felt really comfortable. So I definitely felt that with Gone with the Wind. Scarlett O'Hara's slaves at Tara, her uh, plantation, are portrayed in the film as valued and loyal servants. And here's a clip from the movie illustrating that. Oh, now, Miss Scarlett, you come on and be good and eat just a little, No! I'm going to have a good time today and do my eating at the barbecue. If you don't care what folks says about this family, I does. I has told you and told you that she can always tell a lady but the way that she eat in front of folks like a bird. And I ain't aiming for you to go to Mr. John Wilkinson's and eat like a field hand and gobble like a hog. Fiddle-dee-dee. That's Hattie McDaniel and Vivian Lee in Gone to the Wind. Now, that clearly was was not in anything like a realistic depiction, presumably, of slavery or slave-master relations. At the time, in 1939, the NAACP was objecting, right? What were their objections? I mean, one of the big objections uh, was the use of the N-word, which is prominent in the book uh, that Margaret Mitchell wrote. And, you know, they were successful at getting David Oselznik, the producer, to to leave the, the word out. That is a testament to, you know, how... Things had changed since Birth of a Nation, which was, you know, 24 years, 24 years earlier. Yeah. Um, things had shifted a bit. Like, obviously, things were not better. Uh, but I think uh, the fact that that word is not in there, and really it's hard to find that word in any mainstream Hollywood movies from that time or even after. I think that's a, a tribute to the movie itself. And I think that also helps to keep it as benign as it seems today. Right, if right. it was in there, I think that this movie easily could have gone the way of Birth of a Nation. Right. People like James Baldwin were very adamant about, like, years later would would continue to call up Gone with the Wind as one of the um, sort of the stains on on black American representation in in Hollywood. Oh, yeah, he talked about it a a couple times. And so Baldwin thought that it was depicting slavery and the Confederacy in too happy a light? Oh, yeah. The whole idea that Gone with the Wind represents for so many people now what the Old South is and was. That has become a de facto depiction of of what it is. Black people have, since the movie, since the book came out, have been railing against it. I think now we're just seeing more people who are not black. Yes. Okay, I get your point. Yeah. Um, Hattie McDaniel won an Academy Award uh, for that role. Uh, the first The black first African-American to get an Oscar. And here she is getting the Oscar. I sincerely hope I shall always be a credit to my race and to the motion picture industry. My heart is too full to tell you just how I feel. And may I say thank you and God bless you. You can, you can feel how proud of itself white Hollywood was feeling at that moment. <laughs> yes, even though she had to sit apart from the entire cast that evening at the yeah. ceremony. I was so interested. You talked to a movie critic and podcaster whom you know, Jacqueline Coley, Mm -hmm. uh, who is a big fan. Here's what she had to say to you. And the fact that she got to be a pioneer and win an Oscar. I mean, yeah, they didn't even want to give her a seat. There's aggressions and racism in every single step that she took towards her path. But the fact that she paved a way, I don't think you get to diminish that. Are you with her on that? Yes and no. (laughs) I think I would have been with her on that before I did the piece. Um, But, you know, after talking with Todd Boyd, the USC professor, I feel a little bit more torn in in her performance. And I think I've moved from when I was younger being ashamed by the Mammy character to then 
being like many other people have become and and looking back on her and saying, well, consider the times, put her in the context of the times. And she gave a great performance. And, And now I think I'm back to the middle and feel as though she had a choice and she made a choice. Well, and here here is the professor who moved you toward uh, cutting less slack for Hattie McDaniel, Todd Boyd from the from USC, a film professor. It seems as though people now are starting to read it as though, you know, the sort of oppressive structure of Hollywood was such that these individuals uh, were sort of forced to play these roles. And, and the problem with that is it ignores the act of uh, individual choice. You know, when I look at these individuals, what I often look at is the fact that um, there were figures like Paul Robeson who didn't engage in uh, performing these stereotypes in the same way or to the same extent that others did. So, you know, there are other people who made different choices. Um, Hollywood created these stereotypes, but the stereotypes would not have been able to proceed if there had not been individuals willing to play them. Uh, That's Professor uh, Todd Boyd. One of my reactions to him is figures like Paul Robeson, there was Paul Robeson. I'm not sure there were a lot of other figures like Paul Robeson who had either the stature or the will or the heroism to do what he did. That's a fair criticism. I guess the other question to ask is like, why is that? Is is it because he was persecuted so much by Hollywood and by America? Um, But I do think, you know, even with all that, she was at the end of the day, she was still playing a mammy character. And there's only so much you can give to that. kind. It was it was a caricature she was doing. Uh, speaking of Paul Robeson and what he was doing at the same time, actually before, here's a clip of him from Showboat, three years before Gone with the Wind. I presume Paul Robeson was not offered a job in Gone with the Wind, but would would a guy like that have taken? Hey, sure, it's work. Uh, that's what I actually don't even know if that if he was yeah. ever considered for that role. Probably not at that yeah. point. No, I don't think he would yeah. have taken that. But there you have Paul Robeson singing lyrics written by white people in a Negro dialect. I mean, how should we look at that today? Well, Paul Robeson, when he would sing Old Man River and in later incarnations, would change some of the lyrics that he found objectionable. Yeah. I think there was a line about him uh, about being drunk or something. In later performances, he would uh-huh. change them. Every black person in Hollywood at that time had to start somewhere, right. and you know, Showboat was one of like was where he started. Yeah, so I think that's probably fair. Gone with the Wind is just one of of hundreds of thousands of movies from that era that have racist either are have completely racist as a whole or have racist moments. Right. Um, there are tons of musicals that have blackface in them. Well, you know what there are, and that have that I never saw as a kid in the more publicly racist 1960s, uh, were these Looney Tunes, these Bugs Bunny things, incredibly racist, that were just taken out of commission before I was even a child. And I I only found out about it and saw as an adult when I, like, got the special... VHS just to see these artifacts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I grew up watching those. My dad would, he had like a collection of them and he showed them to me when I was a kid. Really? Of the Looney Tunes. Yeah, the Looney Tunes one. He was like, the special racist one? Oh, yeah, yeah. He Good was for like, him. These, are the, <laughs> these are the things. This is the and way by that the way, they saw us. Racist about all races. Oh, yeah. Native Americans, yes. black people, Chinese, Asians, yes, Japanese, ev- everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, 
again, where do you draw the line? Yeah. Um, he, he brought up, you know, Breakfast at Tiffany's, which has Mickey Rooney in yellow face. Yes, which beyond racist is just a terrible choice for those filmmakers. Yeah, I, I, I will never understand why that's <laughs> yeah, in there. Yeah, and yeah. and every time I rewatch it, I, I'm, I'm reminded. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah. wait, he's in this. Ugh. Do you uh, worry about the backlash reaction to this, which is people saying, oh, first they come for the statues of Robert E. Lee. Now they're coming for Gone with the Wind. <laughs> well, <laughs> to me, I think it's fair to call Gone with the Wind a Confederate monument. Um, it's, yeah. I think... Honestly, a nicer one. <laughs> it's a nicer one, for sure. I mean, they're fictional characters, yeah, but then yeah. the whole thing is a fiction, and yet people True. treat it as it's, it's fact. That's right. And so undoing so many years of that is going to take a lot of work. People saying, you know, this is this is going too far. Yeah, yeah. I think, no, I don't think it's going yeah. too far. And, and most people aren't arguing to ban the movie. Of course. They're just saying, let's Look present the context. Yes. Some version of that is an argument that is being made about how Confederate monuments should be dealt with. Not right. taken away and torn down, but... Put in a museum. Put in a museum. Exactly, yeah. 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 Um, Aisha Harris, this has been uh, fun and enlightening. Thank you very much. Thank you. You can read Aisha Harris's article about Gone with the Wind on Slate.com, and you can hear more of her wisdom at her podcast, Represent. And we're about to take another look at the South, in this case, a 50-year-old number one hit song set in the Mississippi Delta. It kind of leaves the listener wondering. A mysterious song by a pretty mysterious singer. That's next on Studio 360. It was 1967, and the Summer of Love had its happy pop side. But then a song came out of nowhere from a singer nobody had heard of. It was a lot less lovey-dovey, a lot darker. Producer Jenny Cataldo has the story of that strange, memorable song and of the young woman, Bobby Gentry, who sang it. Susanna Hoffs is a founding member of the 80s group, The Bangles. 50 years ago, she was just a kid growing up in Los Angeles which we all know means spending a lot of time in the car, driving around, listening to the radio. We were just driving through Los Angeles when the song came on. Was a third of June, another sleepy, dusty Delta day. I was out chopping cotton and my brother was baling hay. I was immediately transfixed by it. It's as if she's right there beside you when you hear it. It is so close and so real. And mama hollered at the back door, y'all remember to wipe your feet. And then, of course, the narrative. And then she said, I got some news this morning from Choctaw Ridge. 
Today, Billy Joe McAllister jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. The song is haunting for sure. A southern family sits around the dinner table talking, and the biggest news is that a local boy named Billy Joe McAllister jumped off a bridge into the nearby river and died. It's tragic, and yet the way the family talks about it is oddly casual and indifferent. And there's kind of this juxtaposition of ordinary talk around the dinner table with her family, her parents, and her siblings. Well, Billy Joe never had a lick of sense. Pass the biscuits, please. And that's juxtaposed with this mystery that keeps unfolding and unraveling. The family doesn't seem to care that much about the tragedy, except for this young woman, the narrator of the song. She hasn't said a word at the table and is noticeably upset. Mama said to me, child, what's happened to your appetite? I've been cooking all morning and you haven't touched a single bite. It's right here that you start to wonder about her. What does this woman know? And why does she care? Especially when the mother mentions bumping into the preacher earlier that day. Said he'd be pleased to have dinner on Sunday. Oh, by the way. He said he saw a girl that looked a lot like you up on Choctaw Ridge. And she and Billy Joe was throwing something off the Tallahatchie Bridge. And you start to realize that whatever was thrown off the bridge is somehow connected to the narrator. You know, it's sort of up to the listener to answer the mystery, and I don't think many people have the answer. I think that's one of the compelling aspects of the song that kind of leaves the, the listener wondering, you know, and, and trying to fill in the blank. I'll bet no one has heard more guesses of what was thrown off the Tallahatchie Bridge than Tara Murtha. She wrote a book about Bobby Gentry named after her famous song, Ode to Billy Joe. The general assumption is, of course, that the young girl and Billy Joe McAllister had some kind of illicit and forbidden love affair. So, you know, the guesses are all related to that. Even today, there are a bunch of websites where fans debate just what was thrown off that bridge. Whatever was thrown off was a symbol of something to do with their relationship, like maybe an engagement ring or something like that. People have guessed flowers, a draft card, drugs, a gun. But the most popular theory is also one of the most disturbing. The biggest guess is that the song was about abortion, that the mysterious object thrown off the bridge must have been a baby or a fetus. People were still talking about it even a decade later. A 1976 movie about the song played up the mystery. What the song didn't tell you, the movie will show you. Bobby Gentry's Ode to Billy Joe is now a movie. Today, Billy Joe McAllister jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. Bobby Gentry didn't write the screenplay to the movie. However, she had had a conversation with the screenwriter. And according to him, he had free reign about how to interpret the mysteries that are embedded into the song and to the movie version. The direction that he chose to take it in is that Billy Joe McAllister had some kind of drunken homosexual encounter with a man and that that was a big part of the reason why Billy Joe McAllister jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge, which completely shocked fans. Something happened. 
It was something real bad, Bobby. There's no shortage of interpretations, and even the movie wasn't the definitive answer it promised to be. Naturally, it was the question that Bobby Gentry was asked almost every time she was interviewed. Her response? Here she is in a DVD bonus feature from the movie. A lot of people have asked me about to Billy Joe as a true story. And, of course, have wanted to know what was thrown off the bridge. And they seemed to be that that was the message or the story that I was trying to tell. Actually, the story pointed out the particular way that people here in the South deal with the very real things in life, birth and death and tragedy and great joy. I, I think it's peculiar to this section of the country. While the meaning of the song was a mystery when it came out, its popularity was plain as day. It bumped the Beatles' All You Need Is Love from the number one spot on the Billboard charts and stayed at number one for four weeks. And what made that more astonishing was that Bobby Gentry was an unknown 23-year-old from Mississippi. The single was originally released as a one-off, but due to the song's success, Bobby Gentry was rushed into a studio to record more material to fill out an album. And she was sent out on tour and booked on a bunch of TV shows. Right now, I'd like you to give a nice warm welcome to our Mississippi River Delta queen, Miss Bobby Gentry. She was telegenic. But she was much more than that. She was mesmerizing. She was like a runway model or a starlet, tall and beautiful with long dark hair and dramatic long fake eyelashes. She's, you know, gorgeous and she's definitely had style and she definitely, her style was, you know, I associate with the 60s. She'd perch on a stool with a small acoustic parlor guitar and she'd introduce her songs in her lovely Mississippi drawl. Listen to her on the BBC. I was born in Chickasaw County. When I was six, we moved to another region in Mississippi called the Delta. And we lived between two rivers. One was the Yazoo, and the other was the Tallahatchie. And so a lot of people did assume that it was some kind of real story, you know, a confessional story about her youth. Was Bobby Gentry confessing? Was she the one who threw something off the Tallahatchie Bridge? And did her boyfriend kill himself the next day by jumping off that same bridge? Audiences wondered. But she never quite answered these questions. So people kept guessing, even those closest to her. Bobby Gentry was once married to comedian and country musician Jim Stafford, and after they were divorced, he alluded to the mystery in an interview on TV. Bobby and I are no longer married. She wouldn't... uh... She wouldn't tell me what they threw off that bridge. And <laughs> that was it. That drove me crazy. Riding the success of Ode to Billy Joe, Bobby Gentry put out more albums, all in her groovy yet folky 60s country rock soul style. None of her following records would be as big as her first one, but she did have a hit with a story song about a poor southern girl whose mother turns her out. Here's your one chance, so don't let me down. The song is called Fancy, about a young woman who works as an escort entertaining bigwigs and tycoons, and was well compensated. Bobby 
Bobby Gentry also met Glenn Campbell when she appeared on his TV variety show. You know, meeting somebody like Bobby Gentry, she was a good-looking woman, and she was down-to-earth, and she was Mississippi. We did a couple of those duets together. Our voices blended so good on the TV show that we thought uh, we should do an album together. And we just did old songs that we liked, and it's one of my favorite albums to play in the car on CD. Bobby was also super popular in the UK, so much so that in 1968, the BBC gave her her own TV show. She'd perform her own material and sing duets with guests like James Taylor in The Hollies and Donovan. Donovan's best known for Mellow Yellow, but that was the two of them singing another one of his songs, Mountain. He remembers Bobby Gentry being pretty engaged with the show. She probably said, let me sit cross-legged, low down, just like Donovan, as if we're sitting in a cabin somewhere, and he's a folk singer, really, and so am I. So I think she may have taken some decision-making there, and then getting into a pair of jeans, of course, and a simple shirt. We had some fun on that show. Then came the 1970s. She began headlining in Vegas and Reno, spending time with Elvis Presley and was all about glamour and glitz. Oh, the neons are a-gleaming and the gamblers are a-dreaming. Oh, it's nightlife, yeah, nightlife. She spent a full decade staging these tremendous stage productions. The Bobby Gentry brand of stage show was known for being completely over the top. I mean, we're talking about raining on stage, you know, fire on stage, elaborate costumes, elaborate sets. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Bobby Gentry. She always said that she loved show business, and one of the reasons she loved showbiz so much was that everything could be a dimension of something else. Like, each creative act could lead to another creative act. So her song could become a movie, and, you know, her song could become a stage production that requires designing costumes, that requires thinking about choreography. You know, she was very, very into showbiz for how dimensional art can be. And she certainly knew how to handle the business dimension of showbiz. Just months after the release of Ode to Billy Joe, Bobby Gentry had already created two publishing companies beneath her own parent company, Gentry Limited. And also took a very bold move and started publishing her own songs. She actually did produce her own work. That was quite unique for a country artist at the time. She was known to go in with the big guys and negotiate her own contracts, and that was really unheard of at the time. You know, with the money she made from Ode to Billy Joe, she put toll gates on the Tallahatchie Bridge. (laughs) And, befitting a showbiz star, Bobby Gentry got married multiple times. 
Aside from Jim Stafford, she was also married briefly to Bill Hera of Hera's Casinos. She was a high-profile celebrity, from her popular albums to her live shows to her TV appearances. Miss Bobby Gentry. Bobby Gentry and her ode to Billy Joe. Bobby, that was very lush, very lush. You sing a song like you really, like you really mean it. Thank you, Bing, and thank you for having me on your sixth anniversary show. Oh, your appearance here makes the event really special. Live from Hollywood, the American Music Awards. The 17th Annual Academy of Country Music Awards. We actually accept this on behalf of Merle Haggard. I know he would thank all of you. Thanks so much. It seemed like she was everywhere. And then she wasn't. Bobby Gentry didn't make any sort of announcement that she was retiring. She just kind of slipped away unnoticed. Her last public appearance is believed to be at the Country Music Awards in 1982. And then she completely checked out, never made another public appearance or granted an interview, though journalists have been dispatched to get a word from her, unsuccessfully, for decades. Public records show that she owns a home in rural Tennessee, in a town that's so small it's unincorporated. You don't know me where I live, my tracks may soon go everywhere because there ain't no other place for them to go. Where I dwell outside of now for me, that's really hard to say, like sometimes I'm not really sure I even know. Of course, Tara Murtha tried to contact Bobby Gentry for an interview while writing her book. I politely requested an interview through an intermediary and was assured that it was discussed with her, but in the end that she decided that she wanted to uh, maintain her privacy and that was the most important thing to her. She's not a recluse. There's nothing wrong. You know, she's not some weirdo that she's just a person who her very close circle of people understand the deal and don't betray her. And that close circle of people must be very close because there are even family members who don't know where she is or what she's been up to. There's an open message board online where you can read it. Cousins, nieces and nephews, great aunts and old friends have all posted messages in an effort to contact her. Today she's in her early 70s, younger than many of her contemporaries who never stopped performing, like Bob Dylan, Paul McCartney, and Judy Collins. One, two, one, two, three, four. Where is Bob Gentry? In 2009, singer-songwriter Jill Sobule released a song called Where Is Bobby Gentry? I bet that she's still beautiful, goes barefoot everywhere she can. Does she still play guitar or write a song or two? Gentry's been called the J.D. Salinger of rock and roll, and has been compared to both Harper Lee and Greta Garbo. They're all known for quitting the industries that they made their names in, but even those three were spotted out in public every once in a while. Other celebrities have lost touch with her, too. Donovan hopes his words reach her, somehow. 
If you ever get word of what I'm saying about you, Bubby, <laughs> your young co-singer on that TV show remembers our do it together. I hope you're well. I mean, the idea that somebody is able to maintain privacy in this media climate is, I mean, I think that might be one of the biggest accomplishments of all. So in an odd way, Bobby Gentry's life turned out to be as perplexing as the song that made her famous. She never felt the need to explain why Billy Joe McAllister jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge, or why she decided to disappear. Because maybe, in her life, as in her most famous song, there is no pat explanation, no answer, just mystery and wonder. So I spend my days thinking up new ways to do the same old thing. Seasons come and go without a name. It's been decades since singer Susanna Hoffs first heard Bobby Gentry's voice, coming out of the car radio, singing about Billy Joe McAllister and the Tallahatchie Bridge. And still, she too wonders what has become of Bobby Gentry. In my mind, I like to imagine that, oh, it makes me choke up thinking about it, that she still picks up a guitar and sings for the pure love of it, you know? Just to the birds or the neighbors get to hear it, you know? I mean, I just, someone with that much of a gift, you know, who inspired so many of us, but who just, I don't know, she's just one of the greats and always will be for me. That story was produced by Jenny Cataldo and BMP Audio. To see Bobby Gentry, and this really is a mesmerizing video, performing Ode to Billy Joe in 1968 on the BBC, visit our website, pri.org slash Studio 360. I'm sorry I got kind of emotional there. I didn't expect to, but I, I just, I really do love her so much, you know. Coming up. In his new movie, set in the near future, the director Alexander Payne shows Mexicans contained behind a huge wall. So he's probably been thinking a lot about President Trump's best-known campaign promise and the voters who bought into it. I can forgive people for voting for Trump once. It would be harder for me to forgive them for voting for him twice. Alexander Payne on his new movie, Downsizing. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. One of my favorite living filmmakers is Alexander Payne. And not just because he grew up in the same place and time I did in Omaha. His movies, which he writes as well as directs, are in one of my sweet spots. Smart, charming, humane, realistic, quasi-comedies with quirky characters and meandering stories. And from the beginning, he's played with social and political themes, like reproductive rights in Citizen Ruth and electoral politics in Election, starring Reese Witherspoon. I believe in the voters. They understand that elections aren't just popularity contests. They know this country was built by people just like me who work very hard and don't have everything handed to them on a silver spoon. Payne also deals with more personal issues like professional failure and infidelity and sideways. 
and The Descendants, starring George Clooney. Isn't the idea of marriage to make your partner's way in life a little easier? For me, it was always harder with you, and you're still making it harder. Lying there on the ventilator, you are relentless. Alexander Payne's latest film, Downsizing, tackles pressing issues like global warming and inequality and the purpose of life, but with a high concept that sounds like it's going to be pure comedy. Downsizing imagines what might happen if uh, searching for a panacea for overpopulation and, by extension, climate change. Norwegian scientists discover how to shrink people down to about five inches tall. And uh, they propose it very seriously to the world. They propose a two- to three-hundred-year transition from big to small, and they suggest it's the only practical, humane, and inclusive solution to this uh, grandmama of all of our problems, overpopulation. Uh, Here is a clip uh, with Matt Damon and Kristen Wiig uh, that takes place right before their characters are supposed to get shrunk. And do you understand that of your own free will, you will undergo the permanent and irreversible medical procedure commonly known as downsizing? And that following the procedure, your bodies will be approximately 0.0364% of their current mass and volume? Yeah. I'm I'm sorry, Paul, I need a yes or no? Yes. Yes. It's an odd idea. I remember when you first told me about it many years ago. Uh, What what was its genesis? Where, Where did this notion come from? It came from Jim Taylor and his brother, Doug. Jim, and his brother is has co-written with you almost all, all but one of your movies? Jim Taylor, yeah. yeah. Uh, all but the last two. Doug has nothing to do with the movies, but Doug, Jim says, for many years has just had the odd idea of what life would be if you were so, if your mass and volume were so much smaller, how big a house you could have in such a small lot and what your food bills would be. And he had done a lot of let's say, calculations. And we thought, well, how would this idea really, really come into existence? And probably we thought it would be conceived as a solution for overpopulation. And who would probably think about that? Uh, Scandinavians. Uh And who among them? Probably Norwegians. Mm -hmm. The overpopulation angle was our entry point, and then we saw it offered a wonderful prism through which to see a lot of things. Yeah. Also, this other amazing balancing act you do, right, is it's a comedy, but it is this profound and moving existential drama. I'll take that as a compliment. It's a compliment. Thanks very much. I mean, I always kind of, even if it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, say that I make comedies, you know, yeah. like John Ford, oh, I make westerns. Yes. You know, I say I make comedies, and, and Sc- certainly Scorsese talks about the American film director as a smuggler, that he or she has to work within a, some sort of vaguely defined genre. Oh, I make gangster pictures, I make thrillers, I make westerns, I make musicals. But within that, you smuggle whatever, you know, honest concerns you have. So I always say I make comedies. But after every film, I'm told, yeah, but it's not really, f- I mean, it's funny, but it's kind of dramatic and serious and so forth. And all I can say is perhaps pretentiously, I take comedy and satire seriously. Another of my favorite movies of 2017 is Get Out, mm-hmm. the Jordan Peele film. As is mine. And, and, and it struck me similarly. He, he's making a horror movie. He, no, he's doing a hybrid of a horror comedy and smuggling in this like rich, important Social. That's what makes thing. it such a great movie. I'm not. Right. You and I aren't the first to say it. That's right. why it's enjoying all the success it's enjoying. But right. it fully fulfills the genre expectations while clearly being right. a, a social satire and a ferocious one. And downsizing too. It, it's suddenly like, whoa! Now we have a a, a a genre practically. 
Well, because of the bizarre times we live in right now, it seems... I don't know what you mean. Yeah. But it seems uh, fitting that uh, horror and science fiction would return as they had been in the 50s as metaphor films. Right. So the day the earth stood still? it, It feels as though it's time to remake Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Right. You talk about the crazy times we live in, and I suppose times when you started thinking about this in 2006. Do you feel as like you lucked out by landing when you did? I don't want to luck out that way. (laughs) I'm told, it's like, oh, the film is so timely, and it has, for example, the image of Mexicans and Central Americans living behind a giant wall. And uh, did you put that stuff in only when you were shooting last year in 2016 and Trump and all that kind of stuff? And the answer is no. We thought of all of those elements back in 06 when we began writing, and sadly, they have achieved more timeliness now. And even more sadly, they will probably be more timely 10 years from now. You do, so you wish you weren't such a prescient artist. I no, guess. it's yeah. a horrible burden. Um, one of my reactions as I was marveling over it, there are lots of things you didn't do. Like, oh, are we going to see Matt Damon fighting off a, a rat or something? Yeah. You know. Well, and we've seen that stuff in other movies. Yeah. The Borrowers has lots of cutesy pie stuff with the thimbles and the, you right. know. And uh, I've never seen Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, but I hear it has some of those things. You've never seen it. it. How funny. Yeah. <laughs> but he, when, you, like, when you're making this, you don't say, eh, I better go see Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Not the whole movie. Uh, oh. the, the visual effects uh, czar put together a clip reel of big people and small people effects from other films so uh-huh. that we could see good examples of bad examples. Yeah. In Downsizing, there's this one character, a Vietnamese refugee, uh, played by uh, the actress Hong Chao, uh, who, who dedicates her life to helping others. Uh, uh, there's been some, uh, I've read, criticism of, of the way she speaks English and this broken English that is sometimes played for laughs, completely charming laughs, and she's an important character who, who made me cry, which I almost never do in movies. Um, how, how do you feel about that criticism? I'm very sorry it has appeared. It never occurred to us. Like, that that sort of take on the character never occurred to Jim and me when we were writing or to the actress and all of us who shot the film. I mean, it was a character completely conceived and acted and edited with tenderness. Right. And uh, Hong Chow, the actress, says, well, how else is someone who never studied English formally supposed to speak? And And she says that her... Parents and the Vietnamese community she grew up in in, in Louisiana speaks like that. So, yeah. um, why, if you did, did you write that character specifically as a Vietnamese refugee? We want we meaning Jim and I were making knew we were making an American film with an American protagonist, but we wanted to include also not only a different part of the world, but a way in which downsizing would have been used. In negative ways, right. and specifically by oppressive governments right. to to forcibly downsize political prisoners. Which she is. Which she is. And sadly, uh, Vietnam doesn't enjoy the finest human rights record, and they do ship goods to the United States. So that's how we wanted to get her here. So we chose her to be a Vietnamese dissident. Right. I think of your films. In, in Nebraska, there is a w- one very satisfying punch thrown. Oh! I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, that there's a single gun shot in any of your movies. Never had one. Uh, why's that? Not interested. Because you, uh, you just don't like violence in your films or in— It would be fun to make—let me say this. It would be fun to make a Western one day. I'm a big fan of Westerns. And you pretty much got to shoot guns in a Western. I think so. Yeah. I make comedies. Right. 
<laughs> or comedy. Yeah, or yeah, he's putting up the air quotes. <laughs> um, and also, there are enough movies with violence uh, as their climax or throughout. I, you know, yeah, movies are society, and our movies, I feel, are too violent. Yes. Laura Dern, uh, who who starred, of course, in Citizen Ruth, uh, recently said in an interview that she'd like to do a, a, a crossover sequel combining Citizen Ruth and Election, uh, in which her character, Ruth, this drug addict, meets up 20 years later with Tracy Flick from uh, the, the recent Witherspoon character from uh, Election, which is a kind of a good idea. What do you think? Um, I'll get back to her on that one. <laughs> All right. It sounds like you actually are intrigued about the idea of either turning downsizing into a series or maybe what if somebody said, no, I want Nebraska to be a series. No, in general, I'm not yet at the point where I am dying to do television in as much as I recognize that we are in a golden age of television. I still like movies and I got into it because I like to do theatrical release movies. Having said that, downsizing is such a big idea that now that the exposition is out of the way in the film. So you made the pilot. We've made the pilot, and each uh, hour, let's say, could be an utterly different story that takes place in a world in which miniaturization exists. Right. Like the first tiny Supreme Court justice who once impaneled— Oh, that's uh, funny. —only wants to rule against other small people. That's funny. Well, which made me think, as I was thinking about this, during the last election, maybe in 2008, but definitely in 2016— Hillary Clinton was said to be Tracy Flick. Uh They think they can just all of a sudden, one day, out of the blue, waltz right in with no qualifications whatsoever and try to take away what other people have worked for very, very hard their entire lives. No, didn't bother me at all. Do you buy that? Do I buy that? That that's an apt reading of Uh, who Hillary Clinton is. Yeah, I can't. That's not for me to say. Okay, uh, But I do appreciate that Tracy Flick has entered popular vernacular to some degree as either fairly or unfairly right. branding, you know, a, a particular type of very ambitious woman. Correct. Do you regret that? No. Oh. No, it's fine. Um, He's an Archie Bunker. He's a, she's right. a Tracy right. Flick. Or, or Becky Sharp in Great Expectations, yeah. same kind of thing. In yeah. fact, not just because Reese Witherspoon's played both characters, there's some connection between those characters. Oh, she did play Becky Sharp. I was thinking of Miriam Hopkins. Ah, uh, that's because you're actually an erudite uh, moviegoer, and I just know what I've seen in the last 10 years. Um, speaking of politics a bit more, when, when Nebraska came out in 2013, a movie I loved very much, um, I sold it to people by saying it is this depiction of a white rural middle America I had never seen done so well and sympathetically and funnily and all those things. They don't make them like that anymore. Those cars will run forever. What ever happened to it? Stopped running. Wow, that came out of nowhere. Yeah, they'll do that. <sighs> That's Nebraska. Uh, now, at the time, um, of course, I, I didn't think, wow, look how well Alexander has depicted all of these Trump voters. There was no such thing as a Trump voter. But in retrospect, Nebraska is so sympathetic to people who could have been satirized unsympathetically. It would be harder for me to forgive them for voting for him twice. Well said. You should run for something, Alexander. (laughs) Um, uh, So, as I said at the outset, downsizing sounds like an outlier in the pain oeuvre. But you've said, and I I think I get this, that it's a culmination of of your other movies. Explain what you mean. I think very much so. I think it has some of the, let's say, political, social satire elements as Citizen Ruth and Election, our first two movies, by all I mean Jim Taylor and me, and then the 
following the schnook through losing himself and finding himself a bit of the next few films. And following the schnook. That's a, that's, <laughs> that's a genre. Follow the schnook. And uh, kind of puts them all together. Downsizing takes the pressure right off. Plus, you're really making a difference. You mean all that crap about saving the planet? Yeah. Downsizing is about saving yourself. We live like kings. Got best houses, best restaurants, Cheesecake Factory. Got three of them. So, you know, because I've, I've done a few interviews about the film, and a lot of them say, oh, this is such a departure for you, science fiction. I say, it's not even science fiction. It has a funny, ridiculous, you could say science fiction. I could also say social satire yeah. premise, but that's used as an excuse to get into all these other things. Right. Uh, but it's not that I was seeking to do visual effects, although once I saw that this story required them, I thought, well, that'll be interesting uh-huh. to learn. I'm in my 50s, and, you know, why the hell not? Let's see what all the kids are doing. And do you feel like, okay, now I'm going to be a superhero movie director? No, I uh, would choose not to start sucking on the old Hollywood crack pipe. Yeah. Uh, well, you've avoided it for, you know, 25 years. Isn't, aren't you—is aren't you, that still tempting to do what? Suck, suck, on, the on, the, ho- suck ho- on the Hollywood crack pipe, as you put it. Well, we'd have to define that. I, I, what to sell out? I would love to sell not out. Not sell it, out. Just I'm, I'm not even talking <laughs> about selling out. Uh, you have a nice life. I, I'm talking about. Uh, it can always be nicer. Well, <laughs> yes, it can. Um, congratulations! This is a really good movie. Thanks, Kurt. Downsizing is just opening in theaters across America and maybe the world. Elsewhere? Oh yeah, all over the world. We're good. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you. That flew by quickly. And that's it for this week's show. What did you think? I was immediately transfixed by it. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian, Skylar Swenson. And this, in fact, is Skylar Swenson's final Studio 360. Thanks for all your great work, Skylar. We'll miss you. As we will miss our production assistant, Claude Gillette, <laughs> who's also done terrific work for us. Thanks to both of you. I'm Kurt Anderson, and thank you for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360... Why are you doing this? Why am I doing this? It's the movie people love to hate, but one brave critic just loves The Godfather Part 3. And they pointed out all the reasons. It was not at all plausible or realistic, but cinematically, it's riveting. Our favorite stories from 2017, next time on Studio 360.